ancient aliens. This is the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. Do their claims hold water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there? We are now on episode 43. I am Frederick, your guide into the world of pseudo-archaeology. This time we are back in alien territory. This episode will cover topics brought up in Ancient Aliens episode 9 from season 3 called Alien and Deadly Weapons. Could it be that ancient weapons were gift from the aliens? It will be an episode where we focus heavily on metal. I guide you through the evolution of metalworking and we will notice that aliens did not have anything to do with it. Then we will bravely declare war against anime expert and katana lovers by reviewing common myth about the sword katanas. Are katanas superior to European longswords? Not really, but it's a bit of a mixed bag. But uh, we will find out more about that later. In the last section, I will talk about Jan the Ark. And we will find out the mundane reality of a few miracles. So I might upset alternative historians, 4chan and the Catholic Church in one episode. That might be some sort of record. If you want to support this bravery, stay to the end and I will tell you how. Remember that you find sources, resources and reading suggestions on our website diggingupancientaliens.com. There you will also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. Now that we finished our preparation, let's dig into the episode. Where would a logical place be to start an investigation into alien weaponry? Apparently with fire, because it's where we will begin everything. We have learned over this series that according to alien theorists, the humans did not invent fire, but it was a gift from our alien overlords. We hear it repeated here, but let's listen to what David Southwell says about it. In Native American traditions, quite often it's fire was stolen from the world above. In Maori legends, again, we see the theft of fire from the gods. In the Greek legends, it's Prometheus stealing fire from the gods. If you have been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that, as usual, these myths are taken out of context or misrepresent the story. Among the Ojibwe, Menomine, Pit River and other Native American tribes, there are elements of fire being stolen by, well, other legendary creatures. But at the same time, we find among, for example, the Mi'kmaq, Lenelenape, and Cherokee tribes stories that animals brought the gift of fire to the world to other animals. If we have to take each account literally, would it not be equally probable that an animal thought humans how to make fire? Or could it be that these people are trying to make sense of a world with the tools, tradition and knowledge that they have access to? The Maori legends is about the culture hero Maui and his interaction with Mawika. There is a bit of trickery within the story. Mawika stored the power of fire in her fingernails, or nails in general. When the hero meets this fire goddess, he is very well behaved and she honors his request for fire and hand him one of her nails. While Maui is heading back to the village, he wonders... What would happen if Mawika lost her power? How would she create 
fire. So he puts the nail out in a river and go back to get another one. And another one. And another one. And another one. And another one. Five minutes later. At last, Mawika loses her temper and tries to kill Maui with fire. But the hero receives help from the weather god who puts well the forest fire out that she started to kill the hero. In a last attempt to kill the hero, Mawika throws her final nail, but it misses and implants itself in the Maui tree. The Totora, the Patete, the Pukatea and the Kaikumako trees. These trees cherish the power of fire and store it within themselves. Maui then carries back dry sticks to the village and teach them that way how to create fire. And the traditional way of making fire is to use a so-called hikaahi or fire plow. The Maori use a sharpened stick from the kaikumako tree on a piece of mahohe. This method is, well, far more effective than I thought from videos online. It just took a few seconds to work up enough friction to create smoke. In a way, I can understand the idea that the Mawika's power was stored in these types of woods. It's a great example on how myths are used to explain the world around us. But to add aliens to this narrative makes the whole thing even more illogical or it makes it illogical to be honest. These are being with superhuman technology and knowledge beyond our wildest dream and they visit Maori just to show them how to create fire with two sticks. And then we have the Prometheus legend and I believe it is widely, widely misunderstood. It is usually said that Prometheus, the titan, and friend of Zeus stole fire and brought it to humans as a gift. The issue with this narrative is only half the story and actually the end of the story. The first known preserved telling of the myth come from Hesiod's Theogony. Zeus demands a sacrificial meal as payment from the mortals. Prometheus, who had a bit of a soft spot for us uh, meaty humans, don't want them to waste the best part of the animal. So the titan hides meat inside the animal's stomach and put unedible skin in a cube of glistening so Zeus have two alternatives, the smelly, foul-looking piece of animal intestines or that great, nice, juicy-looking piece of fat. Mm, so he, of course, chews the fat, only to then realize it was all a ruse. Damn it, this better not be a ruse! when the offering is burnt. As a punishment, Zeus was a bit upset about this. He takes fire away from humans like, you know, an obstinate child. Note that the human had fire before all of this started, but Hesiod's never tell us how it was first gotten. It was not a really important, uh, important part of the story. But again, Prometheus, who feels for the now very cold humans, steal the fire back from, from Zeus and, well, gives them to the humans and then receives his well-known punishment from Zeus. These are great examples of how ancient alien experts don't understand the myth they quote. They often seem to base their speculations and ideas on uh, public reimagining of these myth and legends. It's almost like using Disney's Hercules movie <laughs> to 
to learn about Greek mythology. Sure, the names are there and the story is somewhat similar, but it differs wildly, wildly from, you know, the OG account of Heracles from the Greek legends. Don't really tell that story to your smaller kids, at least. And would it also not be more logical that the people of the time associated fire with heaven due to lightning? Not only because aliens. Well, I wonder. But why are we talking about fire? Well, it sort of leads us to the next subject, metalworking. Metals have made our life easier and let us as humans do some fantastic things. Also, many bad things. Some really nasty stuff, to be honest there, but how did we create this technology? According to Giorgio Sukalos, the process went uh, as follows. We go from attaching sharp stones to the ends of sticks and then all of a sudden we have actual swords. The implication here is that the shift from the Stone Age to the Metal Ages was so swift that we, well, we couldn't possibly have figured this out ourselves. The source of metalworking must therefore be, well, alien visitors. Is that what we really see in the archaeological records? One day our ancestors happily created flint tools, living a simple life under the open skies, have a nice cave, you know, all of that. And the next day they're suddenly hammering out bronze and iron swords preparing for war. The answer is, of course, no. As with most technologies, we find a slow but steady evolution of metalworking. The technologies will also differ depending on where they are practiced and the raw materials available to the people. Something we would not expect to see if an outside force introduced the technology altogether. So let's start at the beginning, shall we? It is not as we just one day picked up a piece of copper and started to hammer it into a spear. The first use of metal goes back to the Neolithic age. Well, not maybe to create objects, but it seems as they were slowly experimenting with with what we could do with this material. Initially, the Neolithic people used, for example, red oxide in graves and in wall decoration. In the Sumerian towns of Eridu and Susa, they used a hematite, an iron mineral to burnish pottery around 4000 BCE. And Egypt found use for copper mineral in cosmetics due to the green and blue colors they produce. As we see here, people used and experimented with these minerals before we got into the Metal Ages. A logical question would be, when does a period start? Is it the first time a technology is used? The first time someone starts to hammer on a piece of native copper? Or is it when a society begins to adopt the technology more widely? I could argue that we should set a date when it's adapted on a larger scale but it's worth remembering that there's a bit of disagreement on this question and we also should take note that the periods copper age bronze age you name it age are quite fluent so they will differ compared to where in the world you you live as we will note further on here we can find early single finds of copper artifacts in form of needles, awls and beads created around 7000 BCE. These artifacts are made from native copper. Native metals are elements that can be found in their pure metallic form, meaning 
you can pick them up and recognize them without refining them. Bounded. Gold is maybe the most obvious example of native metal. I think we would all be able to identify this element in nature. As long as a copper object has not been heated, we can tell if an object is made of native copper or from mined copper. But as soon as the melting process is introduced, we can no longer differentiate between native and mined copper. And the first object we find is in copper, since before the Bronze Age we have the maybe forgotten Copper Age. And these objects are called hammered. They were worked without heating and just beaten into shape from their native state. And we know quite a bit about native copper and this type of metalworking because the indigenous people of America still use this technology as the Europeans started their colonization. The issue with coal hammering, either copper or gold, is the end product is relatively brittle. So using the metal for tools was basically out of the question. And at first it appears to have been mere status symbols. So metal work was a tad limited until the invention of pottery kilns. The earliest known use of a kiln can be found in Tepeghabiristan and Tali Ibelis in Iran dating to around 6000 BCE. Katal Huyuk uh, in Turkey also have a claim to be one of the earlier sites. However, the date is unfortunately quite uncertain and ranging from between 7000 BCE to 6000 BCE. Now, while the locations on the Iranian plateau have kilns preserved from this era, Katal Huyuk has evidence of slag. But what we see here is a quite slow transition from cold hammering technology to smelting due to their dependence on native copper. It was not until around 3500 BC we started to see an increase in the copper objects. With the establishment of Sumerian city-states, the demand for copper seems to have increased, encouraging people to go to the highlands in search of larger quantities than what native copper offer. And we know that the techniques spread rapidly during this time and that local copper production was established rather quickly. Even if the minerals were unavailable locally, these metal was imported and refined later in the villages. Several different levels of smelting techniques have become clear at this point and they seem to be connected to various group's cultural development. And while we have spent some time in the Near East, it's easy to think that copper production originated here and then spread outward. While this technology has some diffusionist tendencies, it was most likely evolved in several different places. While Iran and Turkey were relatively early in using copper, Southeast Europe picked up the technology around 5000 BCE. The earliest copper uses started around 3000 BCE in the Shanaxi province in northwest China. The exciting part is that they most likely developed independently. So we have a zone in Iran and the Near East, we have one zone in Southeast Europe, and then we have one zone or epicenter in the northwest of China. 
Again, not something we would see if an outside force introduced this technology. After the break, we will enter the Bronze Age and continue our heavy metal trip. Welcome back. After we started to get the hand of copper and smelting, we started to experiment with alloys and developed in the end bronze. The introduction of bronze opened new possibility due to the more robust material that they now got their hands on. More people could afford to invest in bronze since it would last much longer than the previous copper tools. As I mentioned, bronze was not a sudden creation, but a result of experimentation. Before bronze, we were already creating different alloys. The most common alloy was uh, arsenical copper. So by mixing copper and arsenic, you could create a metal that was a lot harder compared to just pure copper. The main drawback with this method is that you are slowly poisoning everybody around you when you're melting the arsenic into the copper. And why we didn't use tin a lot earlier is that the tin is quite scarce in its native form and usually found only in granite and then only in a few locations, for example in China, Bolivia, Nigeria and Cornwall. Right. Of course, Cornwall. So most of the tin is enclosed in granite. How did the Copper Age people access the material? Aliens? Could be. Or, or, hear me out, they used a mineral called cassarite. Or we know that they used a mineral called cassarite. It is found in a pure state and this mineral is then white. But in most cases it's found diluted with other minerals and have a bit darkish color. But if melted... You can extract the tin minerals trapped inside of the cassarite. Most of our early bronze seems to not have been created from pure ingots. This was something that would come a bit later, however. But in the early bronze manufacturing, copper and cassarite were added together in the furnace and were then heated to the melting point of bronze. At this point, the cassarite will, will uh, reduce to tin and the copper will then absorb the tin in it. The obvious drawback of this method, in turn, is that you do not have the same control over the properties between tin and copper. You want to have about 12% tin in the mixture to get the best quality bronze. So, when was bronze introduced? Well, this depends on what culture and what area we are looking at. We find that earliest bronze work in Mesopotamia, primarily centered around the Euphrates and Tigris Delta. The earliest signs of a true Bronze Age are the top of about 3000 BCE. In Egypt, we start to see an increase of tin and copper production around the 4th dynasty, roughly around 2600 BCE. Interestingly, Egypt entered its true Bronze Age relatively late compared to the other locations that we are looking at. And do you remember just a moment ago when we talked about how quickly the Iranian plateau developed its melting process around copper? When it comes to bronze, these locations were not as quick. Some argue actually that the people of Mesopotamia gatekept the tin 
you know, traded it up so it wouldn't go south and that way left Iran in an extended copper age. But around 2000 BCE, we see how even Iran gained access to tin and bronze. Also, let's not forget South America, where we see a very concise copper age, possibly due to the large tin deposit near the lake Titicaca. Bronze work spread along the Pacific coast and the Andes from around 1000 CE. The knowledge of bronze seems to have uh, not reached higher than in Peru and Ecuador. South American culture used bronze in axes, knives, pins and chisels. Many of these objects have been found, for example, around Machu Picchu and, of course, other sites. South America has uh, several examples of rather complex alloys. In bronze objects in Machu Picchu, we have, for example, tin bronze, but with an addition of 18% bismuth. And this unusual concoction did not make the objects more brittle, actually. Seems to not have improved it that much either. But the metalsmith of South America seemed to not have found really the sweet spot yet on 12% tin. Around late Titicaca, the chisels are containing like 4 to 9% tin. And around Peru and Bolivia, the, the tin in bronze could range from 0.7% to 13%. Something we should take note here is the shift between the technologies here is relatively slow. We often like to imagine that the people will jump on board on a new idea as soon as it comes available. But just think how it has been in our modern days. Think back on the smartphones. While it's a device that most people have now, far from everyone had a smartphone in 2007 when they first were starting to be released. I, for example, didn't buy my first device until 2011 when they had got, you know, a bit better and bit more affordable. But how is it with the Iron Age then? Philippe Imbrogo put it like this. No one really knows when people first started making steel. Some say it only dates uh, 1000 BC. To make a steel sword in ancient times was not an easy task. You would have to get a high quality iron. And most of the time, they could not get that iron mined from the earth. And meteorites were obtained, which were pure iron, which made the best steel swords. These were considered magic swords. And it was usually a guarded secret. I believe Philip is talking about iron and not steel. Yet he asked a valid question. When did we start to make iron? And the question is more complex, or the answer to this question is more complex than one might think. Iron, like copper, can be found in a native form, especially in meteorites. Therefore, we can see iron trinkets that were created almost alongside the earliest copper artifacts. So let's rephrase the question. When did we start working iron with intent and advanced techniques, not just cold hammering? The earliest location of metalwork can be found in Alakahuyuk, where the first known iron dagger was found. But iron also had a slow start. We didn't see large-scale production until 1200 BCE. And from this time forward, iron became the 
dominant metal to some extent. But the Greeks and the Romans used bronze in their armies for quite a long time after the introduction of iron. The Roman military still had armor of bronze up to the 3rd century CE. And ironwork have a much clearer diffusion spread than, for example, copper and bronze. There are, however, indications that iron technologies were invented at different times and locations. Chinese metalworking began in 600 BCE, well after the adaption of iron in Asia Minor. A key difference is that Chinese metalwork start with you actually using blast furnaces, and we don't encounter this technology in the Western world until 1100 CE when it was, well, created, introduced in Sweden. And from Sweden, this technology spread throughout Europe between 1400 and 1500 CE. Again, we see an example where technology is uh, developing independently and in separate parts of our world. And ironsmithing was developed fairly late and slowly because it depends a lot more on heat. To get rid of all impurities, you need to melt the iron. It basically has to become liquid. And this does not happen until the metal reaches 1540 degrees Celsius. And the early furnaces were incapable of reaching this, uh, these temperatures. And the furnaces developed around 1200 BCE were only capable of heating iron to 1200 degrees Celsius. But this is enough to melt the iron and eliminate some impurities or slag. The issue is that this reduction, called bloom, will still have uh, charcoal and slag left in it. On top of this, the chemical reduction is often in smaller fragments. These pieces must then be welded together in the smith fire and then hot hammered, uh, worked by, by this blacksmith. How iron was obtained will also differ depending on where in the world you were located. So in Sweden and in Central Europe, access to iron in geological rock was minimal during the Iron Age. Here or there, they used the bog iron instead, a highly impure iron mineral that is accumulated in bogs. Typically, that's bogs that's fed by iron-rich spring water. And these clumps are then fished out of the wetlands in late spring or around midsummer when the areas are the driest, basically. And the mineral then is refined and melted in a furnace. When I say this mineral is impure, I mean it is impure. From 400 kilo of bog iron, you get after the reduction about 35 kilos of iron that can be used by the blacksmith. And it seems as within the Scandinavian population, the knowledge on how to kind of melt uh, iron work bog iron was uh, fairly common knowledge and we learned this from looking at how much iron is left in the slag pieces at a farm or at a settlement and we can take for example the viking settlement in Leans Aux Medov in Canada looking at the slag we find at the site we see that the people here knew how to do it how to work bog iron how to melt it but they did not have a 
expertise in it. They seem to have left a lot of iron in the slags, meaning that they didn't heat it properly, didn't build the furnaces properly, and they probably had the same access to this knowledge as the expert iron worker on Iceland. And on Iceland, we don't see this amount left in the slag of iron compared to this settlement in Canada and we see it in other locations looking at different farms that seems to have some sort of metal production they have a lot more iron left in the slag compared to the blacksmith that we can find in the villages or settlements for example And within this episode, we also presented with some extraordinary ideas regarding blacksmith and their magical abilities. You mustn't look the village blacksmith in the eyes, because people are frightened of being killed by his gaze. The blacksmith isn't allowed to live in the village because of his magical powers. And as we just noted, most people within the Middle Ages could most likely do a bit of everything. Melt ore, maybe hammer out some nails, you know, basic stuff that you need on your farm, in your day-to-day life. I've seen some list of things a person was supposed to be able to do in one workday. On one, we can learn that a man was supposed to be able to do the following... Dig 80 meters of dike, cut down 15 trees, cut 6 loads of firewood, cut 100 hopsticks, sharpen and polish 110 pairs of poles for round pole fence, build a sled, add 2 layers of log on a log cabin, cut 100 sheaves of leaves. So this is just an example of what someone in Sweden would be expected to perform during the day. But you need tools and be able to maintain them to be able to perform this type of work. In contrast to what Peter Feiberg told us, the blacksmith was actually quite an important person within the society and they even had access to a guild. It is correct that myth and superstition surrounded the smith occupation. Some some myth might even be due to how the smith operates. You see, some part of the blacksmith work could be done out in the public. The smith won't care if you see him hammer iron or steel since this is a skill that you must acquire over several, several years of training. However, the melting process was something they might have wanted to keep for themselves. And the myth I have found regarding the smith seems pretty tame. Basically, anvil dust is supposed to have had magical properties, but in the mind of the past, many things were supposed to have magical properties. The blacksmith's position in society was a lot better than we're led to believe by these uh, ancient alien proponents. As we saw with the Viking settlement in Canada, they were terrible at melting iron compared to the craftsmen we find on Iceland. 
blacksmiths most likely kept the melting process to themselves as good as possible or within the guild because learning how to get the proper temperature to get good steel will not take years of training and as with any secrecy these lead to speculation and superstition so if you wanted to get this knowledge you had to be accepted as an apprentice by a smith because if they could you know keep this good steel and iron to themselves people would need to come to them to buy these type of things protecting their occupation and their salaries however it was never on the level we heard here it sounds basically as Peter Feiberg is describing an executioner than a smith and as we see here the alien astronaut theorists have simplified a very complex process to the extent that it's basically misguiding what we have gone over here is just a scratch on the surfer and we could go deeper into different periods, technologies, locations, type of furnaces. And I mean, it is a subject we need to dedicate an episode or two on with an expert. But for now, let's move on. I think you have enough information here to to combat uh, alien theories on these uh, strange claims, at least. So let's investigate some of the aliens' most deadliest weapons, just after these few messages. I'm just going to pause the episode here and thank you, my dear listener, for tuning in. It's great having you here exploring the world of pseudoscience with me. If you want to support the cause of educating people and combating pseudoscience, I'd like if you become a Patreon or a paid subscriber of the show. For as little as 250 per episode, which is less than what the Loch Ness Monster asked for, you will help me continue producing high-quality content and gain access to a treasure trove of exclusive bonus material. Imagine! the benefits of becoming a paid subscriber where you gain VIP access to our exclusive pseudoscientific book club. You will have the opportunity to hear me read and discuss the works of our favorite on-screen experts for you. To sign up and become a paid subscriber, simply head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support. You will find all the information you need to join our community there. Your backing of the program would empower me to create more content that assists people while keeping the show as accessible as possible. So let's combat misinformation and pseudoscience together. Just head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support to sign up. Together we will uncover the truth one episode at a time. As we head into the next section here, I have to admit something. I would love to be a sword nerd and I've tried so hard, but alas, the the sword fever has eluded me. While I do find swords interesting to look at and maybe a bit fun to wave around with, I'm... I'm not an expert. Luckily, others are. And I did consult a couple of these experts for this next part because it might upset some people on the internet more than usual, especially neckbeards and dweebs. Now, the ancient alien theorists are heading into samurai territory and the mystical katana. And most of it is actually not too bad. They have uh, Raphael Koshe, who seems to be the History Channel's uh, resident sword expert. And he does a quite decent job explaining the history of the katana. Some Japanese fetishism is sneaking in here and there when he speaks, but Raphael does 
does not really say something extraordinarily odd, keeping in mind that he is a white American talking about Japanese swords. And he covers some rituals and myth about the katana, but is it is actually not until uh, Professor Michael Denning from UC Irvine that things actually start to go wrong here. The famous stories are always, of course, the Japanese steel used for the samurai blades has been very hard to reproduce because some of these processes can be incredibly sensitive to the exact detail of the temperature. Some of its features are just its, its flexibility and the way they were able to fold it over and over and its incredible strength and its resistance to oxidation, which is what you really need to keep something sharp. You see, Japanese iron quality was not as excellent as most legends uh, make it out to be. Um, a tatara, or Japanese furnace, could not really get the iron hot enough to melt it, leaving a lot of slag, coal, and other impurities behind in it. What comes out of the Japanese furnace is referred to as uh, tamahagne. We can call it iron ore, basically, for simplicity. And this ore will have varying quality and impurity. And the best part are the parts that are the most silvery looking in their color. The finest pieces are then selected and turned into these steel swords and weaponry. The swordsmith then repeatedly fold and hammer the iron. And it was a technology that was developed as a way to get rid of these impurities from the iron. The technique was necessary to create a good quality product. The reason why Europe, Asia, Africa or any other metalworking region or steel for that matter did not use technique was they had access to better furnaces. Using the folded technique on mono steel, for example, that doesn't have any impurities due to the melting process will actually not improve the product in any way, sense of form. What is impressive with this technology is not the quality, it's that they actually figured out in Japan how to turn something of bad quality and make it into a actually really good quality product. But it all actually comes down to how you tamper the steel. If the tampering is terrible, it doesn't matter how excellent the steel quality is, you will have a lousy quality. You can have the greatest furnaces, you can have the best quality of steel. If the tamper is shoddy, you will have a bad time. So, as things turn out, there are no secrets behind the steel of katana swords. How about the idea that katanas is much sharper and better than any other sword? We saw that the steel is not really different from what we find elsewhere, just using a different method. The legendary sharpness, however, is actually a modern myth. It originates from P-movies back in the day in combination of the idea that these European swords were basically dull clubs. And the dull medieval swords are a myth with a bit of a unclear origin, to be honest. It could originate from the fact that some European sword techniques include a fighter holding the sword by its blade. So the logic is that if you hold a sword by the edge, you want it to be dull so you don't cut yourself. But reading the manuals from this time, we learn that there are ways on how to control the blade without slicing yourself. 
as long, of course, you don't slide your hand up and down the blade. If you don't do that very bad move, some you don't really have something to worry about. The knight also had leather gloves, making it even a bit more safer. And you can even test it yourself. Take a knife and press your thumb against the edge. You won't cut yourself and it won't even leave a mark. So my lawyers just told me that you are not supposed to do this at home. I am also supposed to add that this show is only for educational and entertainment purposes. Well, jokes aside, katana is a sword with a long tradition. And there will be katanas of excellent quality and there will be those of bad quality. Rituals and mythology does not make the blades exemplary. Experience smith, however will make a blade good or bad. It does not matter if they operate in China, Japan, Scandinavia, Iran. There have been people with great skill, a lot of talent and the good connection to get their hands on the best raw material. These have gone on to create amazing product, blades that legends are born from. They don't need any extraordinary power. They just need skill, time, training. There is no room for alien intervention in all of this. And even excellent Smith probably made a dud from time to time too. Even if you have the greatest quality iron, greatest quality steel, if you're bad at your job, you will have a bad blade. Iron itself doesn't really do much in that sense. So let's leave Japan and turn our gaze towards France. Have some historical figures had access to weapons of alien power. How about historical people? Do we have any examples of these having access to these magical alien swords? According to ancient alien theorists, it so happened that Jean de Arc had one of these magic weapons, of course. When Joan of Arc was arrested and brought to what we now know of as her condemnation trial, her inquisitors were determined to get information about her sword. Her inquisitors were obsessed with finding out about her sword, and that is because Joan of Arc's sword was reputed to have legendary power, divine power. Joan of Arc is a character we will devote a bit more time to in a future episode, and we're not really given that much in the section here. They get into some rather problematic stuff that I want to address in a different episode. So you have to look look forward to that one later on. The short story of Jan's life, however, is that she was most likely born in 1412. Most known for her part in the Hundred Year War. That was not hundred year long. Yuan claimed that angels and saints were giving her divine knowledge and was part of leading the French to victory and installing Charles VIII on the throne. Now. Were the inquisitors of Joan of Arc interested in her sword? Luckily for us, the records of Yuan's trial have been preserved. And I am using Daniel Hobbins' translation. But there's a couple different versions available online freely. And I link those as well on the episode page on our website. And no preserved record actually mentioned the sword possessing 
any sort of magical power. And Yuan actually had a couple of swords, it seems like. And in Yuan's trial, they do spend some time talking about her swords. We learn, quote, She says as soon as the sword was found, the clergy there rubbed it, and at once the rust fell off effortlessly. Something that might be expected when an angel foretells you about a sword, but they then go into details of the colors of the different scabbard that you got from the village, and you got a couple actually, where the sword was found. The inquisitors then go on to ask if you put any blessings on the sword, or curses for that matter, which Yuan denied, indicating that the sword was important to her because it was found in Catherine de Ferbois' cathedral. Catherine was Yuan's favorite saint and the reason for basically the importance of the sword to her. While being asked if she tried to pray to make the blade give her better luck, she is supposed to have said, It is good to know that I would have wished my armor, Mon Harnois, to have a good fortune. Yuan was wounded twice in battle. So the scribe seems to have left a little bit of her wit within the protocol themselves. And they spend more time almost on the banner during this day. And, and Joanne even say that she prefers having the banner into battle over the sword. She intended not to hurt anyone, so the flag she felt was more suitable for her. These swords are actually mentioned in two different sources and some exciting piece of information can be found about John's sword in uh, Chronique de la Putzel and uh, Journal du Siege de Orléans. In these chronicles the story of this sword is brought up but they differ a little from what we hear at the trial. According to the earlier accounts, Joan asked for a sword from uh, St. Catherine de Febar Cathedral. The important part is that it's supposed to have five crosses on the blade. And according to Chronique de la Putzelle, there was a box of swords. Quote, During these things, she said that she wanted to have a sword that was at St. Catherine de Feboire, where there were five crosses in the blade, fairly close to the handle. They asked her if she had ever seen her, and she said she had not, but she knew very well that she was there. She sent there, and there was no one who knew where she was or what it was. However, there were several that had formerly been given to the church, which they all had a look at. And one was found quite rusty, which had five said crosses. It was brought to her, and she said it was the one she asked for. It was polished and well cleaned. So apparently there was a custom among the knights who survived the Battle of Agincourt to leave their swords at this church as a token of of gratitude to uh, Saint uh, Catherine for having protecting them in this battle. As for the rust, we are told in the Journal du Siege de Orléans that the sword was just a bit rusty, but when Joan had confirmed they had the right one, it was clean and polished and looked great for her. Note here that the chronicles don't give the sword 
any sort of medical attributes. Neither do we see this in the trial. The Inquisitor wants Yuan to have used magic with the blade. If there were magic, they would have added these charges towards Yuan, but the questions don't really get the answer they want, so they shift. If the Inquisitor had evidence for the source magical properties, they would definitely have brought this up. I assume it would have been uh, the same with the Chronicles. If it was magic connected to this sword, why not boost it? Just throw up goddess on our side and give us holy relics and uh, the friends are in the favor of the god almighty himself. It's a bit odd, but I will close out the show on that note. The evidence for ancient aliens were not found this time either. So let's try again next time. Until then, please spread the word by leaving a positive review on platforms like iTunes, Spotify, or among your fellow trench dwellers. For more information about me and the podcast, check out diggingupancientaliens.com. There you will find an extensive list of sources and resources and reading recommendation for those eager to expand their knowledge on the subject matter. And they're all listed on the episode page. You find me on most social media sites. And if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, you also find my email on that site. Use it uh, wisely. I've gotten some nice messages lately. I really appreciate those. And if you want to support the show in any way, you can head over to Archpod Network, become a member there. You get access to all their shows, bonus material and ad-free content and all of that nice, amazing stuff. There's also a Patreon just for this show. And if you don't like Patreon, there's a membership thing on the website. Now, Sandra Martelor created the intro music and our outro is by the band called Trallskruv, who sings their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists will be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep showing that science. Men jag skyddar mig För jag har folie här Och så säger ni Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 